0: Welcome, friends. James Corbett here at CorbettReport.com. It is that time of the month, which is, of course, the time of the month in which we invite our good friend David L. Smith of the Geneva Business Insider back on the program to talk about things that are unfolding in Europe and around the world, economically, socially, geopolitically, and otherwise. If you haven't yet done so, please do check out the Geneva Business Insider blog, as infrequently as updated as it may be. (laughs) And of course, that will be linked in the show notes for this program. As always, David Smith, always a great pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for joining us.
1: Good to be here again and uh, you know I've had some nice feedback over the last month uh, on uh, my reappearance which is very flattering and uh, I hope to continue.
0: The crowd clamors for more, so let's supply them with that. And uh, there's a lot to talk about, but I think something in your neck of the woods that's of great interest, although it does not directly affect Switzerland, but still uh, there has been some Swiss reaction to what's happened recently. And of course, I'm talking about the European parliamentary vote that just took place and has been called a a title change or a political earthquake, or it's been described in different ways. But... A long story short, the Eurosceptics uh, of various stripes have doubled their representation in European Parliament and become a significant minority that will uh, potentially have the ability to to create a bit of havoc and chaos within the European parliamentary system, which may be a good thing. But let's get your take on what just transpired there in the, the EU vote.
1: Yeah, well, it's a very, very interesting situation. I mean, the, there has been for a long time now uh, Clamours from people who want to see less control from Europe, and um, we we have seen a lot of mouthing from the politicians of saying yes, 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 and with, in the UK, David Cameron promising a, a vote, but of course once he gets re-elected and with enough preconditions that makes you think it may never happen, uh, and um, you know the the, the public are ju- just generally getting fed up there there's an overwhelming uh, frustration with the austerity measures which uh, are designed as you, we well know to make the banks rich and safe and and the and the workers poor and vulnerable and uh, people are finally beginning to wake up and and kind of make protest to it now uh, lots of people talk about this as being an an earthquake um i i would say it's um it is, be- it's, is the beginning of a phase of turning. It's maybe the element of the situation, but it's certainly not <clears throat> yet in Hitler's bunker. So, um, But if you, if, you, if you look, I will take the UK, for example, which may be the, the best case uh, um, with uh, Nigel Farage's uh, UKIP party. It's been poo-hooed for years. Uh, ridiculed and, and ignored, and now it can neither be ridiculed nor ignored. And uh, Nigel Farage, I mean, I've met him a couple of times, and uh, I actually like the guy, you know, he's a good guy to have a beer with a cigarette with. And by the way, Nigel, if you're listening, you still owe me a beer. <laughs> so um, you know, you, you 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 kind of look at at his success, and 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 now he is actually destabilizing the main parties. And you, you look at what is happening in, in Brussels, where of course the two, the 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 left and the centre-right parties still have uh, have a huge amount of uh, votes compared to the others. However, they're looking a bit at, at like having to form a grand coalition to eliminate the others. Um, in which case, you, you know, you you're beginning to say what is what is the what is the point in the 80% excluding the thoughts of the 20%? or they end up in bed with uh, parties like UKIP, which I think is inconceivable. Now, I think where there is a problem is if you look at the uh, anti-European Union parties as a whole, or the Nationalist parties, whatever you want to call it, um, some of them are widely different in in the way they look at things. I mean, um, Marine Le Pen in France, who who is, uh, I think, if I remember correctly, got 24% of the poll compared to the incumbent uh, President's party, which got 14%, and, and the previous uh, Sarkozy's party, which got about uh, 12 or 13, <coughs> you, you know, you, you, you're, looking at, uh, you're looking at someone who basically represents a, um, a resentment vote, because at the end of the day, you know, the French are not fundamentally racist, nationalist to, to the extent that uh, Marine Le Pen is. But it is, what it is showing is there's is, is a grand movement against all of the establishment politics uh, gains in Europe. Same thing in Holland to a lesser degree, but uh, you have all these people who are voting for these, um, let's say, uh, off the main track two-party system in, in order to try and get the voice heard because they know that... Uh, with the uh, you know the oligarch controlled uh, uh, bank controlled main parties that they're gonna get nowhere and little by little this will happen and uh... it it doesn't take much imagination to turn the clock back to the nineteen thirties where everyone was laughing at Hitler with three or four percent of the poll and within ten years he was chancellor and god knows what we all know what happened after that and god forbid that Europe ever go down a route like that but the surest way to go down that kind of route is, is to continue to ignore the will of the people and uh, eventually, um, all of these—the uh, EU's sole, sole, and unique purpose is to ignore the will of the people, and uh, in, in order to pursue their their unaccountable agendas, to satisfy their their true masters. So
0: this Let, cannot let's end badly. let's examine that a little, because that's an interesting point that you just raised—the idea that uh, it's the the. Populist tendency, which is in counterbalance or counteracting the uh, the sort of the, the haughty elite who feel they can ignore the masses, is where these these movements come from. And as you point out, that was the sort of socio-political context that made the rise of the Nazis in the 1930s possible because of that, that sort of disconnect between what was happening economically and politically versus what the people were feeling and experiencing. And that obviously plays into an authoritarian mindset, which is obviously what played out with the Nazis and, and the rise of Hitler. But now we are in a similar situation where we have this, I think of it, I mean, there are certainly political ramifications to what UKIP and, and the National Front and these these types of organizations argue, but I think that this has to be seen more as a sociological phenomenon, what we just saw. And I think along the lines of what you are talking about, the, the reconnecting of politics to the sort of the populism, it's a re-rise of some sort of populist politics, which has its own pitfalls, potentially. Um, so we are on a cusp of a very interesting moment, and my question to you is, why now? Uh, There's nothing fundamentally different, I would say, from the position that that has existed for uh, certainly at least one or two election cycles, if not much longer. Why are people suddenly connecting with some of these formerly fringe groups?
1: Well, I think the answer there is very simple. I mean, it is the the austerity environment that's being created. um, And the fact that people are feeling genuine hardship. And, uh, you know, the, the, the elites have no concern whatsoever about the average person. In fact, they don't even understand remotely what the life of an average person is like. I mean, you take our British politicians, you know, who are from, <clears throat> mainly from the um, very privileged uh, elite families in the first place. They've never lived in a council house. They've mm-hmm. never bought a pint of milk because uh, Ed Miliband was embarrassed into showing that he hadn't a clue how much a pint of milk cost now uh, i mean the, these these are things that when someone says when when all of the realities that you're living with are totally unknown to the person who's saying i'm with you i'm behind you i understand you and your situation every day is getting worse you know and uh, you know the guy at the bottom of the pile he's watching his food bill go up for every month or his beer bill go up every month so there's been less and less less money available for himself or his holidays or whatever and uh, observing where money is uh, being you know thrown away I mean uh, like we talked last time about the Ukraine and giving many billions of dollars to the Ukraine from the EU without any consultation whatsoever and uh, that obviously touches people in countries like uh, Greece very heavily and we see there again there's a tremendous rise in the the anti-European Syriza party and there's also a big rise in the extreme right parties which is Again, deeply, deeply disturbing. Uh, but what what we what we have created at the moment is a kind of fascism light in, environment where um, y- you know coercion is done on, in in a gentle way uh, rather than the, in the in the brutal way of the 1930s. But uh, when 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 order starts to break down, which inevitably it will, if people just keep getting the their frustration levels up. Then, then things are going to get tougher and tougher and tougher. And uh, wherever you go around the world, you see. I mean, you see in in China, for example, you you know the 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 violent repression that is being used there on protesters. You know, when uh, states ultimately their sole purpose is to perpetuate themselves, and if if killing or beating up uh, the citizenry is 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 the means to the end to do that, then none of them have any problems doing it whatsoever, whether they do it with a smile or with a, with a snarl.
0: I think that's really the point. I mean, there are many different ways to look at this, but it's really the question of centralization of power and control in few hands as represented by the European Union or the decentralization of that power and control. And I guess the question is, what is the best strategy for doing that? Um, Just on a side note, you note uh, Greece and some of the other countries that might be resentful of uh, European Union money being sent off to Ukraine and what have you. But don't worry, the Eurozone crisis is now solved. The EU new regulations will require countries to include drugs, prostitution, and other illegal revenue sources as part of their GDP calculations. So, uh, countries like Italy is now expecting a 2% GDP growth this year on the back of that recalculation they're going to have to do. So, I guess the EU problems are solved economically speaking. But that's well, just I a. Guess,
1: I, I guess the Berlusconi will account personally for at least one percent. <laughs>
0: yes the bunga bunga parties Uh, yeah (laughs) personally fielding the italian economy well i I guess the other question to ask with regards to this recent vote is what does the EU, eu parliament do what does this actually affect what how will this actually have an effect on what the european union actually does
1: well, I, I, I think like, like with most people in these situations, they will continue to ignore it as far as possible because, uh, as I say, if they, if they manage to form a grand coalition of the two major parties, then, then things will go on as before. And for these fragmented parties, you know, they need to get representations from people of like-minded parties from at least seven countries in Europe um, who have got like-minded agendas and they, they need, I forget how many... Votes that you need in order to have uh, to create a little um, grouping which has more influence, uh... but some of these people are very divided. I mean, I don't think Nigel Farage, for example, would uh, would get into bed with uh... with some of the more extreme right wing parties, even although that would be an easy way to to you know pick up some additional points and have influence. But I think the, cent- the central parties are going to be the same. They're they're going to have, they're going to have to cut. To uh, compromise uh, in the grand coalition, so it is. It is eating away at them little by little, making things a bit more difficult. But they will continue to ignore it, uh, as, as elites always continue to ignore reality until it comes to an end. And it's uh, maybe it's unfair to say elites. I mean, it's uh, it is human nature to think that things can go on when when there are obvious indications that the best thing to do is go and go down a different course. And we have evidence of that in the financial world with QE, and we think that's going to be the answer, and the answer with uh, central banks who think that they can, they can uh, micromanage the entire world's um, economy between about 20 people. All of these things, obviously, ultimately are going to fall apart.
0: It's a very good point, and one to keep in mind. Sometimes the failings and foibles of our own psychology we should understand also apply to these so-called would-be elite, who are not different yeah. Classes of people from us fundamentally, um, well, except for psychopathy or other latent uh, psychological yeah. problems that might that's infest right. at their ranks well let's let 's turn to a related topic that is uh, that is interesting to watch as another example of this decentralization phenomenon that I think is represented in the rise of the uh, the EU skeptic in, uh, in eu parliament and i 'm talking about the Scottish independence referendum that 's going to be taking place later this year, and this is not a subject that I believe i've covered in much detail or even any details so far yet so why don't you set the groundwork for us and tell us just a little bit about where this uh, this referendum is coming from how it came to be and and what 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 is it we're looking at if this actually does go ahead boy that's a big
1: question I mean, first of all, be... <laughs>
0: in three sentences or less please
1: <laughs> <laughs> first i I'd better declare my conflicts of interest because i am half english and half scottish so i'm already a potential national or with my Swiss passport triple national but um, I was brought up until I was in my uh, early twenties in Scotland and I lived in different parts of it. I lived in the far north which is fishing and agriculture and a little bit of uh, shooting and holidays and things like that. Uh, I lived in Aberdeen which became the major center for for the oil industry basically grafted onto a fishing and agricultural environment as well then, in Glasgow, which is more in, in industrial shipbuilding, coal mining and so on, and then Edinburgh, the capital. And taking all of that together, uh, I had a good look at it when I finished my exams. and the first thing I did was I took a plane and I went to London. So I mean, I guess you would count me as an economically internally dip- displaced person, because uh, you know Scotland has uh, relatively limited alter um, economic uh, possibilities or certainly at that time and this this is changing now quite quite a bit but it's still it is still insular its economy is still quite limited and there there is a great deal of emotional appeal to scottish nationalism which is basically another word for socialism i mean it is it is cannibalize the Socialist Party into, into uh, you know, a, a rear place in, in Scottish politics. But by, by voicing the same approximate agenda uh, and adding to it the emotional appeal of, you know, Scotland the Brave and, you know, uh, it, so it, it, if I look at it the elections which are coming up shortly, uh, I, for example, am not allowed to vote in those elections. Because uh, I am not living w- within Scotland, even although you know I may have investments there, pay taxes there, etc., etc. However, if you're a 16 year old schoolboy, um, you can get the vote because, again, you know the younger and the less educated people are, the more they're likely to follow the sentimental, nationalistic line. So, how Alex Salmond, who's the, the leader of the Scottish Nationalist Party, managed to get that one over on the British government, I don't know. Um, and uh, then then you have the question of um, what exactly is actually going to happen to Scotland if it is fortunate or unfortunate enough to become independent. Now again, if, if I speak with my English friends, they said if they give us the vote, we'd all vote that Scotland leaves. <laughs> so you have a contradiction there. But there are major issues, and I can't detail them all, but what do you do with the oil industry, which uh, where a lot of the oil is off Scottish waters. How do you deal with the the most bankrupt uh, financial institution in the u k which is the Royal Bank of Scotland, which is affectionately called at the moment the Royal Bank of England for all these reasons? Um, what do you do with the the military facilities which are are in in the country most particularly you know the early warning system uh, air force positions and the and the submarine nuclear submarine bases which are on the west coast of Scotland? Um, and the other thing, which I think is very telling, is that if Scotland does get its independence, you're going to have a country which is profoundly socialist uh, with a neighbour which would become, by the exclusion of the Scottish uh, uh, MPs, uh, perpetually conservative. So then, the last uh, the last kind of phase of it, which I find comical, uh, it is that while they want to leave, they want to stay at the same time, so they want to keep the English pound, which means they will be perpetually in the grips of the financial policies dictated by the Bank of England. They want to keep the, the present monarch, um, uh, you know, an awful lot of the status quo things. Um, so at the end of the day, you know, if, if you if you look at a country which claims independence and then gives sovereignty over the money supply to um to another country whose po- political agenda is completely opposed to theirs, how on earth can it work? And then I suppose the last thing I, I talk about is, you know, personal interests because uh, Mr. A- Alex Salmond is um, he's a very personable guy. In fact, for, the, uh, for those who were brought up before the times of uh, Harry Potter, there were school books that we read, things like uh, The Wind in the Willows, and there's a character in there called Mr. Toad of Toad Hall, who is uh, actually a caricature of of, um, of uh, Alex Salmond. You know, he's reasonably smart, he's quite articulate, he's very egocentric, uh, he goes around wearing harris Tweed jackets, he's significantly overweight, and he does have the same kind of beaming smile as, as Toad of Toad Hall. But at the end of the day, you know, what is this guy going to bring? I mean, apart from his own aggrandizement, which was the objective of Mr. Toad of Toad Hall, um you know i i just really don't don't see that they have a true vision of what could be an independent scotland well no, I that's the, the, that's
0: the point isn't it i mean this is the, this is so important and fundamental to what is actually being decided on and as far as i understand the actual question that will be answered yes or no is should scotland be an independent country Uh, That leads to all sorts of questions about what that actually means. And and I come at this from the Canadian perspective, having lived through the the Quebec referendum, where there was no clear sense of what it actually meant if they did actually vote for separation. There was talk of sovereignty association and using the Canadian dollar and the Canadian passport and, and all of this. And it was not clear what it actually meant for Quebec to separate. And in this case, I'm not sure, is there an articulate vision of exactly what
1: type of relationship Scotland would seek with the UK? no i don't think it is fully defined, and I think uh, salmon's agenda is is, is, not, is not to have a vision but to to uh, you know, accumulate votes so he's going to say whatever is necessary to get the votes uh, as i say for in large measure for his own aggrandizement. Um, i I would subscribe if, if if I had the vote i mean I would certainly subscribe to voting for Scottish independence, but uh, they would have to do a few radical things like have their you know, completely separate themselves from uh, the, the pound sterling, have their own currency, um, decide what they do about the military. Perhaps do the same thing as the, the Ukraine did with with Russia and just um, rent rent the bases. But at the at, at the moment, you know, you get people like Lord Robertson, who was a former head of NATO, with his doom and gloom projections. that You know, Scott, the whole world will fall apart. Scotland isn't part of the UK because of the military risks from our enemies. Well, I mean the, the whole thing is complete bloody nonsense but you you listen to these propagandistic nonsense and, and at least from my point of view it just turns me off completely because I know what's behind it but uh, you know this appeals to the lower educated um, you know emotional Scottish vote and, and and never forget Scotland you know I, I took my own illustration of you know getting on the plane and leaving to England the, the, the best talents in Scotland leave and they do go to England uh, so you you do have a country which is to some degree <coughs> decapitated of of uh, of, of their finer minds and finer skills, who are to be found having brilliant careers in you know large multinationals like in the oil sector, Shell or BP, or, or you know going to Hong Kong and be, being successful there, going to London, etc. And then you have this kind of um, you know so, somewhat uh, second second tier country with second tier people. Trying to, you know, make decisions as to how they should go go forward. I mean, I, I I just find it, I find the whole thing rather sad.
0: It is, isn't it? It it is somewhat disheartening because again, decentralization I think is a good thing, but uh, but again, it, the devil is in the details, and it's just like yeah. the uh, EU skeptics. It's a question of how we decentralize the system, where yeah. that's the real question at stake, and uh, it doesn't seem there's a lot of answers here. Yeah. Oh, well, all right. Well, I think we will leave that issue uh, to the side for now. But of course, we'll return to it as we draw closer to the actual referendum date. But let's turn yep. to a, um, a different subject altogether, but one that we've kind of been covering um, repeatedly during our conversations, but re- re- continues to be important and in the news and more and more so. Um, and this is something, a, a phenomenon that's been identified on Zero Hedge and other such blogs, as as the mainstreaming of the conspiracy theory that gold prices manipulated. And we have uh, indications of this coming out on a regular basis uh, these days. And in fact, recently, there was a German television uh, program on a, on a news network that did a, a report on this. And there was the latest piece of news that, that went across the headlines. A regulator fines Barclays over the pricing of gold, which, uh, taking this from DealBook, Quote, a British financial regulator has fined Barclays $43.9 million after accusing a former trader at the bank of improperly influencing gold prices at the expense of a customer. And this goes back to uh, uh, Mr. Plunkett, who uh, was a, a, a day trader at Barclays and who apparently was involved in the LIBOR manipulation and also in gold price manipulation. And so this looks to me, at least from the outside, I haven't studied this in great detail, but it looks to me like another example of that phenomenon whereby when a, the dam starts to break on a certain piece of information, throw a, a couple of underlings under the bus and pretend that that was where it, uh, the, the problem really lay. Uh, I'm not sure that's exactly what is happening in this case, but at any rate, the idea of gold price manipulation is more and more in the news these days. Any thoughts, insights into this phenomenon?
1: Yeah, sure. <clears throat> I mean, you're exactly right. I mean, the Barclays thing is little more than a joke. That's you know, it's just throw, thrown out for the public to think, oh, well, the problem's solved. It's got nothing at all to do with that. I mean, if you look at today, the last 24 hours where its options expiry, where, where gold contracts are settled at the end, approximately at the end of a month, um, gold was down yesterday one and a half percent. And again, this is pure manipulation by the people who, who uh, are, are sitting on potential losses. Uh, if the gold price were left where it should be, so they, they manipulate and drive the market down. Um, they, you know, I mean, the <coughs> if you if you look above the level of this poor, simple little trader who is an irrelevant fly in the ointment, nothing more. Um, I mean, the gold the gold pr- price fixing committee is 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 based in London. They have representatives from about half a dozen banks. And if you look at the members of that committee, they're now fleeing the sinking ship as fast as possible. And I think even the the head of the Barclays, um, member of of that committee, has left. (coughs) And... um, its credibility, obviously, is getting more and more doubtful. But uh, whenever there's anything really nasty happens, you know, there's a quick establishment phone call saying, well, you should retire and we'll find a nice job for you somewhere else or you'll get a decent payoff. And thanks for all the good work that you've done and the billions you've ripped off from the general public. You've served their interests perfectly. And it's nothing more or less than that. So, um, yeah, gold, I mean, at the moment people are trying to see physical gold. Uh, Austria is trying to see their physical gold. I just wonder if they'll check the serial numbers or whether it'll be shown the same, the same pile of gold that, um, that was shown a few weeks ago to Germany who said, when they said, you know, everything's okay. Um, the, whole, the whole area, I mean, I, I believe is, is, is a great big crime scene. And behind the trivial little um, people who are playing this game... The real players in the game of, of massive global manipulation of gold are are the bullion banks, who, who very normally are acting under the, the presumed instructions of the Bank of International Settlements and <coughs> the Federal Reserve and the Bank of England. And uh, where, where does a regulator have anything to say about that? He's just going, as he's a paid lackey of these people in the first place. Uh, and he's looking forward to coming back to getting a hugely overpaid job after he's finished uh keeping the cover on the live for another few years. Uh you know there is no way that that, that there's any chance of gold manipulation stopping until they run out of the physical gold to actually deliver on on the you know the contracts when people ask for delivery. And uh I think that war is beginning to heat up, you know, making enemies of uh, of Russia and uh, China may well lead to an acceleration of disappearance of physical gold and put these people in who've been lying for years in a very difficult spot.
0: In fact, we can point to the phenomenon in March, I believe. Russia dumped uh, the the largest amount of U.S. treasuries it has in any single month. And I I believe the next month, in April, they they purchased uh, a considerable, I believe, 910,000 troy ounces of gold to add to their reserves. So we can see that phenomenon uh, taking place. And just to add... Uh, and back up some of the things you were talking about there Uh, for those who don't know uh, there's this uh, story first germany now austria demands an audit of its offshore held gold so that contributes to this this uh, snowballing process that we see taking place and uh and yes you're right you mentioned the london gold fix which is literally an institution that's been in place since 1919 that literally used to operate out out of the offices of lord rothschild there in london and uh, was connected with the rothschilds until 2004 it uh it convened every single day uh to set the price of gold and it included barclays deutsche bank hsbc uh, Bank of Nova Scotia and Society Generale. So um, this is something that's been in under increasing scrutiny since uh, at least November of last year when the UK Financial Conduct Authority announced they were opening this investigation. And I think this Barclays charge is so far the only charge that I understand has come out of this investigation, but hopefully will not be the only one. And to whatever extent this is smoke and mirrors and throwing people under the bus to try to uh, distract people, at any rate, there is a change going on in the, in the discourse And there is more of an understanding that's being openly admitted that the the gold price is fixed and manipulated on a daily basis. So I think there is a sea change happening, and we're starting to see the indications of that geopolitically, as you just indicated. Uh, David Smith, just before we wrap up, I just want to throw in one more story that I thought was pretty interesting and perhaps reflects on the type of world that we're living in and not for the the good, unfortunately. Uh, The Telegraph had an article up earlier this week, London hosts world world leaders in debate on fairer capitalism, talking about how Prince Charles, former U.S. President Bill Clinton, the Bank of England Governor Mark Carney, and fund managers representing one-third of the world's investable income will descend on London on Tuesday, that's yesterday at the time we're recording this, on a mission to solve capitalism's current problems. Uh, The event has been convened under the banner, The Will to Make Capitalism Fairer, The Means to Do It, talking about how they're apparently going to find practical ways to renew the capitalist system, making it an inclusive engine of economic opportunity and shared prosperity. Uh, Other attendees included Christine Lagarde and Larry Summers. And of course, the entire event was uh, convened by... Lady Rothschild herself, Lynn Forrester de Rothschild, CEO of E.L. Rothschild. So don't worry, everyone. Apparently the Rothschilds, Clintons, Prince Charles, Christine Lagarde, Larry Summers, and others of the world are apparently going to save capitalism. I don't know about you. That sends a chill down my spine. But uh, David L. Smith, any take on what we just saw there happening in London?
1: Well, I think it is really wonderful. I mean, we have the Rogues Gallery almost complete. Of all the people who caused the problems in the first place, I mean, from I think you missed out Robert Rubin. I mean, he's the only name notably missing from that. But if you got Larry Summers, President Clinton, who sold out um, <coughs> all all the all the uh, life saving regulations and and the um, Glass Steagall Act in, in in the U.S. under pressure and advice from Mr. Summers and Mr. Rubin. Um, then you have the start of the whole problem, or at least not the start. The start was really Nixon with the um, with the abandoning of the gold standard. But I mean, when it really went off a cliff and made a huge fortune for the, these same people sitting at the table. I mean, Rubin and Summers are worth tens and hundreds of millions on on the back of the of the favors that they did for other people. You know, so. Uh, Christine Lagarde, I mean, what can I say? I mean, she's a lawyer. She isn't even apparently numerate. I mean, I, I know people who work with her. She, I mean, she, she doesn't understand figures, but yet she's head of the, the IMF and she clucks around there, you know, like a, like a preened uh, hen, um, saying platitudes, uh, meaningless platitudes. You've got Carney, who has successfully blew up um, the Canadian um, real estate and credit bubble to a point where he knows perfectly well it's now deflating and collapsing and he got out before the sinking ship sank and he is now coming out with statements like you know we must have nicer capitalism well I I think the way to start to solve the problem is is to put people like Clinton and uh, Summers and Rubin and all the rest of them on on treason charges because uh, until such time as these people have the impression that they're going to end up in prison for what they've done, um, this kind of thing will go on. And they will all come up with the, all the arguments which defend their own personal interests and say, you know, if I, if I were Ruben, a senior guy from Citibank, I would say, well, you know, you really have to stop knocking bankers. You know, you and I may say, well, you know, you might want to stop knocking, uh, you know, people who are doing um, independent broadcasts. I mean, everyone wants to protect their own, their their own... Uh, corner of the yard and, and these people have got a very big corner of a very big yard and, and the trouble is it's not that they've ever done anything good it's just they've done terrible things to the world's economy uh, the world's population in general and the beneficiaries are themselves so I mean I, I would not bother to attend a conference like that because I would just I, I know exactly what, what they're going to say before they even say it. It's just regurgitating the same speeches for years. And, oh, yes, we have to find something fairer, better, nicer, and more lovable. And, um, you know, off they go. So, I mean, that's my opinion.
0: Well, I certainly hope it is just hot air. But unfortunately, they also like to use these little conferences to, uh, to further their agendas. By, Of course, yeah. under the name of fairer capitalism and making things <laughs> yes. nicer for the average person. Because these certain billionaires... Certain. billionaires really care about the average person don't they yeah. all right well there you go um i'm not sure we've covered everything of importance but we've certainly covered a wide swath of material so once again why don't you just introduce your uh, your website and what you do to the people out there who are listening
1: yeah um, my website is uh, the geneva, geneva business com. i run a financial advisory company i'm not an investment advisor but a financial advisor if you find anything i've said that's interesting uh, or you would like to talk about it then don't hesitate to send a mail or or contact me otherwise okay thank you very much
0: excellent all right thank you very much for your time looking forward to talking to you again next week
1: next month Pleasure as always. <laughs> okay i don't want to be overworked <laughs> <laughs>